Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Uh, well, hey, my name is Josh Story. I have the privilege of being the young adult teaching pastor here at Christ Chapel. Uh, good to see all of you this morning. If you will, if you have a Bible, um, open up with me to Romans chapter 7. Uh, Romans 7. We'll be uh, hanging out there this morning. So I have long been obsessed with a podcast called Armchair Expert. Um, it's hosted by Dak Shepard of Married to Kristen Bell fame. Um, and uh, essentially the podcast is just Dak's interviewing a bunch of his celebrity friends. It's an amazing time. But one of the things about Dax uh, that kind of shapes his identity, it's a big part of kind of who he is, is that he has been sober for 16 years. He has this uh, pretty gnarly story of um, addiction and his sobriety um, is a, a big part of what makes him who, who he is. You can't listen to an episode uh, without it coming in. It's just a large part of his identity. And a few weeks ago, he released an episode called Day 7, where he confessed that he relapsed after 16 years. And it was a really powerful episode, just kind of hearing him process all this stuff. But one of the things that I couldn't, uh, couldn't shake was there was this moment when you heard him confess and talk about going um, back to kind of his, his old life for even just, you know, a moment of time. And there is an exhaustion in his voice. You could tell that he just felt discouraged and defeated because he had run back to a place that he swore he would never run back to. He had gone back to a place that he swore he would never go back to. And, and as he was talking, there was something within me that just resonated on a deep le level. And I was, I was trying to figure out why. And what I realized is that that feeling is so common within the church. So often I have felt um, this, this feeling of, man, like I want to follow after Christ and, and, and I want to experience all the life and joy that he offers us, yet yeah, I, I keep running back to these things that I never wanted to run back to. I keep finding myself in places that I never wanted to be again, and, and, and maybe you feel that. May, maybe you resonate with that as well. Maybe you know what it's like to, to deeply desire to follow after Christ, yet there's days where you wake up and you think, why did I do that again? I can't believe that I went back there. I can't believe that I'm, I'm, I'm right back to, to the place that I never wanted to be. I think there, there's very few things in this life more defeating or more discouraging than finding ourselves in places that we never wanted to be again. And if you feel that way, uh, I want you to know that you're not alone. I felt that way many times. You'd be shocked at how many people sitting beside you feel that exact same way. But interestingly, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known, the guy that planted churches all over the world, in Romans chapter 7, he expresses this same discouragement, the same frustration that we feel when we run back to places that we never wanted to go back to. And so what I want to do today is really simple. I want to ask one specific question, and it's this. What do we do when we find ourselves in places we never wanted to go back to? What do we do when we find ourselves running back to places that we never wanted to run back to? That's the question that I want us to answer today. And my hope in all of this 
is that if you walked in this place discouraged, and maybe you, you didn't even know that you were discouraged, but if you walked in this place just discouraged with just kind of where you are in your walk, that you leave, encourage that you leave with hope, because we have a God that actually has an answer to this question of what we do in the moments when uh, we just wake up in places that we didn't want to go back, back to. So that's where we are going this morning. Um, but before we get there, I want to kind of set up a, a 30,000 uh, foot view of Romans chapter 7 because we're we are going to spend the bulk, bulk of our time on the last half of this chap- chapter, but we're going to be picking up in, in the midst of Paul kind of making this big argument. So but let me kind of set the scene for you. Um, in, in the Roman church, there are um, a large group of Jewish Christians, meaning people who, who grew up in the Jewish faith, grew up specifically um, following the 613 uh, commands that are involved in the Mo- Mosaic law that God gave to Moses and then gave to the people of Israel. And so all of a sudden they hear the gospel proclaimed. They hear the gospel preached that we are not saved by our works or by the works of the law, but rather by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so what happens is they are now trying to figure out this kind of thing. of like, well, I've, I've been Jewish this whole time, and now I realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Savior, yet I'm, I'm so ingrained in my culture. What's so ingrained is, is following the law. So what do we do with the law now? Like, am I still required to follow these 613 commands? Like, what do we do with this law that I've followed since I was a child? Right? And so Paul begins to kind of step into that in, in kind of three different sections in this text. And so the first thing that we see in Romans 7 is uh, from verses 1 through 6. And I would sum this up with saying that we are no longer bound by the Mosaic law. That's the first thing that Paul is going to try to communicate in this text, that we are no longer bound by the Mosaic law. And he does, does this by uh, kind of creating this uh, unique illustration, and it's found in verses 2 through 4. So Let me read this to you. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, then she is not an adulteress. Likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, so what Paul is communicating in this first section here is he says, you and I have no obligation to the Mosaic law. We are not bound by the Mosaic, by the Mosaic law. Similarly, right, like a, a woman who wants to marry another man can't marry another man by law when she's already married. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry whoever she wants to, right? She is free. She's no longer bound to her husband. She is no longer obligated to her husband because he's passed away. In, in the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, his death and resurrection marked the end of us actually being bound to the Mosaic law. Now, if you've been a follower of Christ for any peri- period of time, if you've been even you know, around the church for a while, that's probably not shocking news to you. You're probably not like, oh my gosh, I had no, no idea because we eat bacon and we wear blended fibers. Shout out Lululemon, right? Like we, we do all these things, right? Because we know that we're not bound to the Old Testament law. But for this audience, right, this would have been a shocking like just jarring, provocative statement that Paul made of saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like for hundreds of years, like 
my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and so down the line, like we have followed the law to the best of our ability and now you're saying that all of a sudden we're not bound to it? Like what was the point of that? Like what was the point of God giving us the law if the law didn't save us? If the law didn't do anything for our salvation, then what was the point? It's a valid question for them to ask. And so Paul answers that because there most definitely is a point. There most definitely was a purpose to God giving the law to the people of Israel. And he says it in the next section. And how he describes it is this, that the law serves as a diagnostic. That the law came to serve as a diagnostic. And let me read to you uh, verses 7 through 8. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what Paul is saying in this next little section here is that the law essentially serves as a diagnostic. It is a tool to, uh, to let us see that we have a problem, right? Um, think, think of it like an x-ray. If you uh, take a fall and you feel like you broke an arm, right? If you go into an x-ray, the x-ray will say your arm is broken, but the x-ray machine does not have the power or the capacity to fix what's broken, right? Like, it can tell you that you have a problem, but it does not have the power to fix that problem. And what Paul is saying is that the law served, functioned like a diagnostic, like an x-ray, letting you know that, hey, you have a sin problem. Something is broken within you, but the law did not and will not ever have the power to fix what is broken within us, right? Because God did not give us the law, did not give the people of um, Israel the law because he expected them to actually follow, right? It was, it was all designed to show that, hey, you don't have the power to follow the law. You don't have the power to keep these commands, right? Like, I mean, 613 commands is a lot, but even if you broke it down just like the 10 commandments, the 10 commandments are morality 101, right? I mean, it is just basic human morality, but on like a good day, I'm scoring a nine out of 10 before breakfast, right? I turn on Instagram and I'm already coveting something, right? And so like we know that even on our best day, by the end of the day, we're maybe scoring a two out of 10, right? Like, like we can't follow the law. The law was simply designed to show us, hey, you have a sin pro- problem. Now, you have a sin problem and what you need is not the law, is not more obedience, is not just, you know, white knuckle it and just be more moral. What you need is someone to come fix the problem. You need someone to fix what is broken within you, which is what leads Paul to the third section where Paul is going to communicate that daily submission to the way of Jesus is the remedy. What we need in this last section, what he expounds on, is that the law serves as a diagnostic to tell us that something is broken. And daily submission to the way of Christ is the remedy. But let me um, read to you uh, 15 through 25, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time um, because this answers the question that we asked initially. But let me just read this section to you. Verse 15. It says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do, who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know about you, but I have long felt um, a deep comfort in this text. Um, I felt a a comfort in that like a guy like Paul has the honesty and the vulnerability to say, there's this kind of war raging within my soul. There's a war raging between my flesh and the spirit of God within me where, where I, I don't do the things that I want to do, but the very evil that I don't want to do, that's the thing that I keep on doing. And it's just this back and forth, right? It's, like it's just this back and forth. And so what Paul is saying is that there is something going on within us that's just defeating, right? There's something going on within us that, that, that just makes us feel so defeated and dejected because we run back to places that we never wanted to run back to, right? And again, maybe you feel that. Maybe you are in a place where when, when you think about your life, it's not that you don't have a desire to do right. It's not that you don't have a desire to follow after Christ or to you know, be, be a part of what he calls you to. But maybe there's just this war raging inside you and you wake up on days and you think, I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I came back to this place. Like I I swore that that I was done with hookup culture. Yeah, I'm right back here. Man, I I swore that I was gonna live a life of forgiveness and not be overrun by bitterness. Yet I saw that person and, and, and just something in me snapped and I just came right back and I'm just bitter and angry and it's just eating me alive and I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to get back to the place where I want to be. Like fill in the blank with, with whatever it is that you struggle with. My guess is that you've been in a place where it's just defeating and dejecting, right? And what we need is that we need a solution. We need a remedy to what's going on here. And if you're anything like me, in those moments in time, I think, well, why? Why do I run back to the places that I never wanted to, to be? I mean, that's so frustrating, right? And just to bring a level of comfort, there, there are two valid reasons for why we tend to run back to, to those places. And let me um, give you a couple reasons. One uh, is that we run back to things that we swore we'd never run back to because sin is actually a lot of fun. Oftentimes when we talk about sin, we talk about sin in a way as, as if it's this thing that's like, oh man, that's not really fun, so who, who knows why we run back, back to it? No, we run back to it because on some level there's something enticing about it. Right? There's something about sin that is fun. In fact, um, one of the things that I've always loved is that Scripture actually acknowledges the fact that there's a lot of fun or a lot of pleasure found in sin. In fact, in Hebrews 11, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, writes this. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I love that he says the fleeting pleasures of sin because he acknowledges that there is pleasure found in sin. Now, granted, that pleasure is fleeting. That pleasure doesn't last all that long. It's momentary, yet in the moment, there is pleasure found in sin. So one of the reasons why we continually run back to the things that we don't want to run back to, because while 
from a long-term standpoint, it may bring um, brokenness and emptiness and regret from a short-term standpoint. It feels good. And so we run back to it because there, there is pleasure found in sin. But here's the second reason why we tend to run back to the things that we thought we'd never run back to. And it's because we live in what's called the already but not yet. That we live in what theologians call the already but not yet. Meaning that, that we will experience glimpses of salvation on this earth. But we will not experience the fullness of our salvation until we see Jesus face to face. Let me um, try to get nerdy and explain it like like this. For a long time, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around the idea that while you and I who are in Christ, while we are counted as righteous, we're not actually righteous. Meaning that when God sees you, when God looks at you, God does not see your sin. He does not see you as dirty or nasty or gross or whatever. What God sees you as, he, he sees you as holy and spotless and blameless and righteous because what God sees when he sees you is the sacrifice of Jesus made on your behalf. So he looks at you and he delights in you because he sees the holiness of Jesus that has been given to you. He sees you as righteous. He counts you as righteous. Yet, you and I still live on a planet plagued by sin and we live and we inhabit sinful bodies that have a sin nature attached to them. So we live in this world where we daily encounter this crazy battle with sin. That all the things that tempted me before I met Christ, there's still a temptation. All those things still exist. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, I accept Christ and then I just stop sinning or I stop, you know, battling sin. We live in this already but not yet. So I am counted as righteous, but I'm not actually righteous. And so I have this daily battle with sin. And so what Paul is saying is that there's, there's this, this battle going on within us. And you hear the frustration in his voice when he says, who will save me from this body of death? Who will save us from this body of death? Like, that's so exhausting. But then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What actually allows us to, to, to handle this kind of battle within us is daily submission to the way of Jesus. He is the remedy to what is broken within us. He is the remedy to the sin problem that we have. So the question is, all right, how do we do, do this? If we live in this kind of already but not yet world where yes, we are saved, we are forgiven, and, and we get to experience that level of grace, yet we still battle all the temptations and all the things that plague our fallen world until we get to see him face to face, what do we do in the in-between? What do we do in the not yet? How do we continue to fight this battle well? Great question, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you three um, applications as we close of how we kind of run this race well and how we battle um, sin. And the first thing that I would say is this, is that you preach the gospel to yourself when you, when you fall. That you preach the gospel to yourself when you fall. Part of our sin nature is that you and I will fall we will fall short. That's, that's inevitable, right? But the beauty of the gospel is that our God was fully aware that we were going to fall. Like Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and then save us. No, he understood in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, he said, I know you're going, go, going to fall and I'm gonna send Christ to die in your place. So when you and I fall short, what we need to do is we need to remind ourselves of the gospel truth that you and I are beloved sons and daughters of God. 
that, that your sin has been forgiven, that there is no sin that you can commit that, that is too big for the cross of Christ. You can't out the cross of Christ. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves when we fall to remind ourselves the truth that we are loved by a God that is patient with us, loved by a God that is kind to us, loved by a God that forgives us in our sin and meets us there to remind us of his love. All right, so we preach the gospel to ourselves when we fall. But second, we celebrate the steps. We celebrate the steps, and here's what I mean. Um, oftentimes, I think that we expect ourselves to be much more perfect than God ever expects, right? I think that we hold ourselves to a, a level of perfection that is um, honestly unrealistic, right? It's why we say phrases like, I can't believe that I did that again. Really? You can't believe that you did it again? Because God can fully believe that you did it again, right? That's why he sent Christ. And so we have this, this, this kind of like perfection mentality oftentimes when it comes to following Christ. And when that happens, we just feel so defeated and dejected because we just assume that we should be further along than we actually are. So what we actually need to do if we have a healthy understanding of um, this kind of already but not yet battle with sin is that we celebrate the steps. Um, Matt Chandler uh, explains it like, like this. He says, you know, think about um, a baby learning how to walk. Um, if you've ever seen a baby learn how to walk, it's hilarious. So they have these tiny bodies and these massive heads. It's like a human bobblehead. And so what happens is that they uh, begin to walk, right? And they'll take kind of like one like wobbly step. And then they'll take another wobbly step. But then like the massive head takes over and then it's just gravity after that, right? So it's just like, boom, face plant, right? So you got wobbly step, wobbly step, face plant. Never once have I ever seen or heard a parent watch their child take two steps and face plant and then go, God, what an idiot. <laughs> two steps, that's it. All right, all right, cool. Like, no, like, like, like they, they, they freak out, right? They're like, oh my gosh, get up. That was amazing. Do it again and keep going. Do it again. They're pulling out phones and they're Instagramming stuff. Why? Because their baby's taking steps. Like, they don't expect their baby to run a marathon right out the gate, yet oftentimes in our faith, we assume that we should be running as if we've been following Christ for 40 years. When for some of us, we're still learning how to walk. We're still learning how to take steps. And so what we need to do is we need to learn how to celebrate the steps. Because that's what our God, God does. He celebrates the steps. And so if, if I could challenge you to do something really practical, sit down this week and just ponder and map out the growth in your life. We are, we are so convinced so often that we need to arrive. That what needs to happen is we need to arrive so we can finally be holy or whatever, and we neglect to just stop and sit before the Lord and just think about the steps of growth. To think about where we were and how God has brought us here. And maybe those steps are baby steps. But those baby steps are worth celebrating. Sit down and, and just think about how God has brought you to where you are. Now to celebrate the steps. But lastly is this is we need to keep moving forward. We need to keep moving forward. Um, one of the things that happens when we fall is that especially if we are kind of driven by a performance-based mentality, is that when we fall, we just tend to sit in whatever we fell into. That we get so discouraged by falling that we just kind of sit and just sulk and just whatever it is that we fell into. And it would be like in the baby illustration, right? If a child is, you know, learning how to walk and they take two steps and they face plant, look at their parents and say, I guess I'm not a walker. I guess walking's not for me. I gave it a shot. 
sorry, mom and dad, walking's not for me. I'm gonna just sit here and grovel in whatever it is that I fell into. We all know that would be ridiculous. Yet we tend to do the very same thing. We, we get so discouraged by falling that we just stay stuck in whatever it is that we fell into. Yet because we have a God that celebrates the steps, we have a God that says, get up. Get up, keep going. You don't have to stay there. I've sent Christ to, to, to die on your behalf. I've sent the Holy Spirit to indwell within you so that you are empowered to keep going, to keep moving. Don't just sit and stay. Now, the hard part about moving forward is that we can't do it alone. I mean, you can try, but it's a lot easier to, to do it with others, right? So, so moving forward takes a few different forms. One, I think it looks like being discipled. Looks like having someone disciple you or mentor you, right? Having someone who is a few steps ahead of you in your faith to say, hey, I've been where you've been. Help, let me help you navigate the hurdles. Let me help you navigate uh, these kind of potholes. Let me help you navigate these things because this is difficult, right? But let me help you. Let me walk alongside you. So if you are not being discipled, if you've never been discipled, let's change that. Right, join a family night. Um, come talk to someone on our staff, and we would love to connect you with what God is doing here and specifically connect you with someone who would love to just walk alongside you. Right, don't leave here today without doing the work that it takes to, uh, to be discipled. Right? It also looks like community. It looks like uh, being in a community of fellow believers who, who are also w- walking the same race that you're, or that are running the same race that you're running, right? I think that oftentimes um, we think that we, we kind of just be a believer and just kind of have like a lone ranger faith, but we're not, we're not meant for that, right? Like if you are the only person following after Christ in your fraternity, sorority, on your team, in your organization, whatever that might be, it's going to be challenging. And the beauty of what God has created the church to be is this is a community of fellow believers that understands the race that you're running, and what we need is we need to be in a community that, that, that says, when you fall, I'm right here to pick you up and help you keep on going. So again, if you're not in a community, let's fix that. Like, don't leave here today and, and, until you've actually um, said, hey, I want to be in community, and we will get you connected to community. Lastly, I think this also looks like adopting spiritual disciplines. If, if battling sin is a daily battle, then it requires a daily communion with Jesus, Right? If our battle with sin is a daily battle, it requires a daily communion with Jesus. And the beauty of what um, Christ has done for us in the gospel accounts is he's shown us all these different ways to commune with him, all these uh, spiritual disciplines that we can adopt that allow us to better connect to Jesus, right? Dis- disciplines like prayer. Prayer where, where, where we get to just carve out time in our day to stop, slow down, and just lay our burdens and requests before God. Say, God, I'm, I'm tired. God, I'm, I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to make sense of this. And then he's given us the chance to just stop and sit and listen and allow the Lord to speak to us, allow the Lord to help give us direction, right? He's, uh, he, he's given us the discipline of prayer. Have you adopted prayer, right? Or a discipline like meditating on the word of God where, where we get to stop and read the word of God and allow the word of God to read us as we read it. Right? The beautiful thing about the word of God is that this, the scriptures itself says that it is alive, it is active. And oftentimes when we sit and we read the word, God does this crazy thing where it reads us as we read it. Have you adopted this discipline to, to daily commune with Christ by reading his word?
or adopting uh, what is probably my favorite practice of Sabbath, right? This, this, this practice where we get to carve out a day in our week to stop and rest and breathe and delight in God and all of his creation. A day that God has woven into the fabric of creation for us to just rest and delight in him and to commune with him in a way that's just nourishing to our souls. Hey, like, do we have the spiritual disciplines in our life that allow us to keep moving forward, to connect with our God in a way, right? Because we have this daily battle with sin and we need to daily commune with Jesus. When I was listening to the episode with Dax, I was also struck by the idea of how discouraging an already discouraging moment would be if you did not have the hope of Jesus. Right, that if you did not have the hope of Jesus, that would be so discouraging. Yet the beauty of what God has done for us is he says, there is a way out. Right, Paul, in his frustration, the frustration that I, I oftentimes feel is that who will save us from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He has come and he has provided a remedy to our sin problem. And so my hope is that you leave encouraged today because you understand that we have a God who is gracious and kind, a patient father who reminds us of the truth of the gospel, a father who celebrates the step, a father that asks us to get up and keep on going. My hope is that you know that father. My hope is that you leave here today encouraged by the fact that in the moments when you wake up in a place that you never wanted to go back to, when you run back to the things that you swore you would never run back to, you are reminded that there is a father that says, get up, let's keep going. Let me pray. Father, you are um, so good to us, and God, I'm, I'm fully aware that there are moments in time when the idea of your grace uh, seems theoretical, it seems hypothetical. Um, God, for those uh, of us in the room that have yet to experience your grace in a tangible way, God, my, my hope is that the guilt or the shame that they may feel um, is met with your grace through community through people in their lives that can actually walk alongside them and show, show them um, the beauty uh, of what you've done for us. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in the room that might be discouraged, who might feel like they're in a place where sin is just owning them, but they have the desire to do what is right. They have the desire to follow you. They have the desire to be a part uh, of what you've ca call, called them to, but just feel stuck. God, will you meet them today? God, may the truth of your word, may the truth of your gospel stir their hearts in a way that moves them to chase after you in a new way, that they fight this daily battle of sin by communing daily with you, God. God, will you do a work in our hearts as we uh, strive to chase after you, living in this world of the already but not yet? God, we love you. Is there something to pray? Amen.